Hello and welcome to the Well Road Christian Podcast. My name is Mark Stanley and today we're going to begin the first episode of the first series. And I'm very excited because there's been a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that has gone into this process. And before we get started, I just want to briefly say that if you enjoy what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast to leave a review on iTunes or wherever you're getting it. Like us on Facebook and Twitter. Go to our website, wellreadchristian.com, and subscribe for our newsletter, as well as check out our blog. You can find that there, too. And those things really help us out, so I would really appreciate it. Okay, today we're going to introduce War and Peace. And I know I'm going to disappoint future Mark, and so I'm just going to do the best that I can. Um, <laughs> this work is so large and incredible and vast, and, and I read it last summer, and it's been my favorite work by far ever since, and so there's just no way that I could do it justice, but there's some seriously valuable things to talk about, and so I'm going to give it a try in this series. And uh, yeah, so in case you've never heard of it, or if you have, but you know little about it, or even if you know something about it, but uh, you need a little refresher, here's the introduction. War and Peace is a work by Leo Tolstoy, who is a candidate for the best writer to ever live. He lived between the years 1828 and 1910 in Russia, and most of his life was lived in an estate roughly 100 miles south of Moscow. Now, Tolstoy wrote many great works, but War and Peace, published in 1869, is often considered to be in the top three greatest works of world literature. Now, Tolstoy himself said that he spent the best best years of his life writing the work while raising his children and living with his wife in his small countryside estate. When Tolstoy began writing, he wanted to write about the Decemberist revolutionaries who rebelled against King Nicholas I. These young, liberal revolutionaries had been exiled after a failed rebellion, but during the reign of Nicholas II, they were pardoned in 1856. Tolstoy was fascinated by this, and so he wanted to write a novel, like any true novelist. And while doing research for the project, he found that he couldn't really make sense of how to capture the essence of the return of these exiles, unless he goes back to when the revolution actually began, in 1825. And as Tolstoy studied the failed revolution of 1825, he realized that he couldn't give the context of the revolution without going back to the year 1812, when Napoleon and the French army had effectively destroyed Russia, even reaching all the way to Moscow. And this bitter defeat left many influential people dissatisfied with the Russian monarchy, which is what ultimately caused the rebellion in the first place. And so as Tolstoy conducted his research, he concludes that all of history is interwoven in this enormous tapestry where not only does one event lead to another, but one event almost seems to necessarily cause the other. You have Napoleon and his French army in 1812 leading to the dissatisfaction of people who are willing to then rise up in 1825, who are then pardoned in 1856. And it seems like none of these events could be taken or understood in isolation. And we can sympathize with this view in our modern era as well. To take an example from recent history, you can look at World War II and and Hitler's rise to power in the 1930s. I mean, World War I absolutely devastates Europe and the largest human conflict, and in the largest man-made conflict the earth has ever seen. And every country has been exhausted and obliterated with not much to show for it. And because the central powers were technically defeated, the Treaty of Versailles put Germany in a notoriously horrendous position after it was signed in 1919. 
And the terms of the treaty included, number one, that Germany take full responsibility for the war. So all the guilt that comes with accepting the, the blame and as well as the shame of defeat is, is an enormous burden to, to place on a people group. And then number two, uh, the second term of the treaty, rather, was uh, to renounce all African and Indonesian colonies and territories that Germany had, as well as pay 132 billion gold marks in reparations to the Allied powers. Well, there you go. The German economy has been absolutely devastated. And then thirdly, the uh, German monarch had to give up the crown and establish a pseudo-democratic government in order to mimic Britain and the U.S., which, by the way, Germany hated. Oh, and one more thing. Germany's not allowed to have a military of more than 100,000 soldiers. So basically, any nation could take them over at any time, and there's not a single thing that anybody could do about it. So with all of these historical factors accounted for, it, it makes perfect sense why the German people would elect a man like Adolf Hitler, someone who believes in the German youth, someone who's not going to let the Communist Party take over, which, by the way, they were threatening to do. Uh, a man who believed that Germany actually could have won the war if it had been managed better, and that he single-handedly could fix Germany's problems and, and restore it to a state of its former glory and power. Germany didn't want democracy forced upon it, and it was very easy for Hitler to collect and retain authoritarian power once he was elected. And in hindsight, we can look back and it makes perfect sense. The whole thing seems almost inevitable. And so Tolstoy wants to write about liberal revolutionaries in 1856, but in order to explain the context, he starts all the way back in 1805. And he spends seven years writing a book that brings his characters only to the year 1815. But along the way, Tolstoy examines this relationship between the free will of individual people and this enormous swarm-like existence of human beings, and the relationship between the individual human being's free will and an entire nation seem, which seems to move together to produce predictable and inevitable outcomes. Furthermore, Tolstoy wants to examine the nature of political power and, as it relates to free will, how can one man, Tolstoy asks, namely Napoleon, utter syllables out of his throat, and the result is that 500,000 Frenchmen march east and butcher everything and everybody in their way? For Tolstoy, it's not good enough to say, well, it's because Napoleon is the emperor of France. I mean, if he orders something, then people do it. He says, no, no, no. If Napoleon is a demigod or a Greek deity and, and has some magical force over other people, then fine. But if Napoleon is just another human being made of flesh and blood and is feeble and has a cold and, and is just like the rest of us, then how can we really say that this man has any real control over other people? I mean, when Napoleon orders everybody to march, why does anybody do it? Perhaps it is because the French people were ready and eager, suggests Tolstoy, just like the Germans were ready and eager to elect and follow Hitler, and just like many Russians were ready and eager to overthrow Nicholas I in the Decemberist Revolution. So it's almost as if there's this collective unconscious that is also guiding human behavior in a way that we, we, can't, we can't see. 
In War and Peace, we see the interaction with the philosophy of free will, and we see him struggle with how to understand history. Tolstoy recognizes that the unstoppable force of free will is on a direct collision course with the immovable object of determinism. And he's committed to exposing this conflict for all to see in in every area, whether it's judicial or philosophical or political or just psychological. We see the rich psychological insights he displays over his characters as well as he tries to figure out what essentially motivates human beings and how can we understand human behavior in light of its predictability. Henry James described War and Peace as a, quote, large, loose, baggy monster, unquote, and that is a fair description. Many critics have said similar things. There are these short little essays and commentary given by Tolstoy throughout the narrative, which is unlike anything else that ever came before it. It'll start a chapter and there'll be a two-page essay on some philosophical idea relating to how free will could possibly work in a universe of predictable and and testable and repeatable outcomes. What you'll find is that war and peace is the canvas of an artist's mind, rather than the clothing of a specific message. Tolstoy himself conceded that War and Peace wasn't really a novel, nor was it an epic or a historical chronicle. War and Peace defines its own genre. It is simply and exactly what Tolstoy wanted it to be. And if you read War and Peace, you'll get to see international relations as Napoleon Bonaparte negotiates with Alexander I. You'll see individual soldiers on vast battlefields as French and Russian forces clash with cannons and rifles and bayonets. You'll see Russian high society with balls and soirees, drinking, dancing, and gossip. And you'll see what human beings are really like, while forgetting entirely that you are one. War and Peace isn't just a story. It's deeply rooted in historical events. The emperors, battles, and cities are absolutely historical. Many of the generals on both sides are real people. And uh, even though many of the characters that are main characters are fictional... They're established so well in reality that they have transcended their fictional status and become the most well-known and loved figures in literature. The literary brilliance, philosophical prowess, and stunning prose of War and Peace set it above just about anything else in terms of artistic or literary achievement. Isaac Babel has a famous quote that goes like this, quote, If the world could write by itself, it would write like Tolstoy, end quote. The 1,200-page work is certainly a commitment to read. However, after deciding it was worth it, it has since become my favorite piece of literature. And I'm convinced that if you made a similar commitment, you would find the same is true for you as well. After all is said and done, you will have discovered the themes such as the meaning of life, the importance of family, the existence of God, the place of romance in our lives, the experience of beauty, the psychology and chaos of warfare, and many more central themes, which would become classic signature Tolstoy. These themes are expressed through at least five primary critical characters. These characters went on to become some of the best-known, remembered, beloved, and referenced characters of all time, and unfortunately we can only focus on two of them for the sake of time in the series, and also in this episode, since I'm going to introduce them to you. The first, which we will look at in our next episode extensively, is named Pierre Bezikov. Pierre begins the story as the illegitimate son of Count Bezikov, 
one of the richest men in Russia. Pierre is a young man who has just returned from his education abroad, only to find that his father is sick and dying in St. Petersburg. After Pierre arrives, he only gets a few days with his father before he dies. Bafflingly and astonishingly, to everybody's surprise, Count Bezikov names Pierre as the sole inheritor of every estate and asset that he owns, over and above all of his siblings, all of his friends, all of his surviving relatives, and you name it. Overnight, Pierre becomes one of the richest men in Russia. This newfound wealth doesn't change Pierre's nature, however. He is still an immature young fellow who only a week prior was getting drunk with his old schoolmates and tying police officers to the backs of, do of a domesticated bear. Now suddenly he's expected to find a place among the upper class, to host balls and tea parties, to dance and make speeches before the emperor, and manage half a dozen estates with peasants and servants and businesses and, and all the rest. Wealth has brought Pierre some new friends, as well as some fake friends who are looking to take advantage of his naivety. One such friend was an acquaintance of Pierre's father, whose name is Prince Vasily, who wants Pierre to marry his daughter. Now, Vasily's daughter, Helen, is drop-dead gorgeous, and Pierre has had a crush on her since the moment he sets eyes on her. She's cute and witty and makes great small talk at parties, and she's flirting with Pierre pretty heavily, and everyone seems to think the two of them would make a great couple. But something in Pierre's gut tells him that the two would not make for a happy marriage. Helen is shallow, and she has no integrity or intelligence or passion. The two don't have any interesting conversations or even have similar interests. Pierre wants to talk about politics and religion or his latest book that he's reading, while Helen wants to gossip about scandals and the latest meaningless trivialities. And since Helen is far better in social situations, she can steer the conversation any way she wants and make everyone laugh while Pierre is left blushing and uncomfortable. But oh, Helen is already established in St. Petersburg High Society, and everybody likes her, and she could help Pierre's name be kept in high regard. After all, we wouldn't want to be known for tying policemen to bears now, would we? And so, despite the weak and pitiful resistance that Pierre's conscience raises, he decides to cave and to Prince Vasily's pressure, and he enters into a marriage with one of the most beautiful but shallow women he has ever met. What Pierre soon discovers, however, is that incessant emptiness that seems to plague many of us. Despite inheriting more money than he could ever spend in a lifetime and marrying one of the most beautiful girls in St. Petersburg, he finds that he's not happy. Getting drunk on weekends with his old buddies doesn't seem to make him happy anymore, and now impressing dignitaries and going to dances with his beautiful wife and being rich and famous isn't making him happy either. He has a deep sense of loneliness and existential dread that he feels primarily when he's alone. He tries to drink a little more alcohol on the weekends, and he reads incessantly during the day, which is perhaps the modern equivalent of a Netflix binge or internet portal. Anything to distract himself and never be alone to alleviate this sense of indescribable dread. Within months, Pierre's wife begins neglecting him and flirting with other men, showing almost immediately that she really only married him for his money. She's gone every night, and she doesn't talk to him when she does come home, and she ignores him when they go to events together. For all intents and purposes, she wants nothing to do with him. 
Pierre is thrust into an existential crisis for a meeting and belonging that he finds woefully unfulfilled, and thus begins a quest for purpose in life, something to fill this aching loneliness and meaninglessness and emptiness that Pierre feels. He is so young, and yet with all of the wealth, health, fame, and sex that a man could ever ask for, he's deeply unhappy with life, and nobody knows. He's keeping up appearances perfectly well. Now, Pierre Bezikov is written by Tolstoy to, ref to reflect a lot of his own struggles, and I think more than that, an essential struggle of the human condition, a struggle that a majority of people feel at one time or another. Why is it that we cannot bear silence? Why can't we have a hot drink and look out a window? We can't go for a walk without earbuds. We can't eat a meal without a scream. We can't wash the dishes without YouTube or drive down the road without music in our cars. We take our phones to the toilet. We have social media at our fingertips all of the time. We're always texting somebody. Some of us can't even stop texting to drive. We have to always be texting somebody back. Some of us go farther than that. We uh, will use marijuana or alcohol or take some opioids to take the edge off. And really what we're looking for is the self-forgetfulness and the destruction of our sense of self. The weight of the present moment is too much. We want to lose ourselves in whatever we're doing so that it doesn't feel so heavy like an anchor tied in our chest that pulls everything down and might even offer a dull headache. At first we might think it's boredom, but then we realize that it's a deeper boredom that is very scary. So we'll find ourselves distracting ourselves endlessly. This is Pierre Bezikov. He's always reading or drinking or is hosting tea parties or going to balls or, or keeping busy somehow. He's always keeping up these appearances, always happy on the outside, trying to manage his affairs so that nobody sees the real condition of his soul or even his marriage. Next week, we'll focus on this story arc more in depth. I don't want to give it all away. Tolstoy takes his wisdom and his insight into the human soul and with his artistic mastery, he guides Pierre through life as he tries to get to the bottom of that internal whirlwind. You see, Pierre is not content, as many of us are, to just jump from distraction to distraction, running away from that feeling. Pierre dives into himself to cut the anchor that pulls in his chest and reaches up his throat and into his mind and tugs at his soul in moments of existential dread. Daniel Rancor Leferi from the University of Davis, California, calls Pierre, quote, one of the best-known characters in world literature, end quote. Merriam-Webster lists him among the most attractive and sympathetic characters in literature, in the Encyclopedia of Literature. And M. Keith Booker from the University of Arkansas describes Pierre as one of Tolstoy's most memorable characters. I hope you enjoy next week's episode as much as I will when we focus on him more the next and final character we'll have the honor of examining is named Prince Andrei Bolkonsky. And Andrei is Pierre's best friend. He's older than Pierre and generally smarter. He's definitely less naive, more versed in philosophy, and interested in one thing primarily, and that is obtaining fame and glory on the battlefield against Napoleon Bonaparte. 
And I think we can all relate to the vanity of wanting to be recognized and admired by others. I think all of us dream of one particular action or event which would show our competence, our impressive nature, or whatever else. Andre admires Napoleon, who has created and gathered the full economic and militaristic strength of France and is challenging the world with only his wit, his genius, and a dash of cunning and bravery. More than anything, Andre wants to come against Napoleon in battle and show off his own genius, cunning, and bravery in order to win glory for himself and for Russia. When we meet Andre, he's irritated with his life of peace. He's married to a young, petite woman named Lise. She's already pregnant with their first child. But Tolstoy lets us into Andre's mind to see that Andre isn't really interested in a life of peace. He's grown irritated of his wife and her constant religious practice. He tells Pierre in private that he believes marriage is a snare to make men unhappy. He's counting down the days when he'll leave his wife with his father and sister in their beautiful countryside estate while he goes off to war. André is generally cynical. He's emotionally removed and standoffish. He's guided by reason alone and considers this to be the cause of his atheism. He has contempt for the simple-minded Christian faith of his sister and wife. Most of the time, he is respectful about it, but sometimes he indulges in mocking them. Andre understands politics, Russian and French culture, history, geography, and philosophy. And here's something I notice about Andre. He has no eye for beauty. He doesn't smile or laugh. And I mean really smile, because you know the difference between smiling with your cheeks and smiling with your eyes. And Andre is someone who never smiles with his eyes. He sees people as basically uninteresting. He has no awe at life like Pierre does, and he would no sooner stare at the night sky than compliment his wife's new dress. Andre sees no mystery or majesty or beauty in life. Everything that is simply is, and everything that is not simply is not. The only glory worth fighting for, the only nobility that man can attain, is someone who makes history, someone who defines history. All André wants is to meet France, specifically Napoleon, on the battlefield and rise to his level of greatness. Well, André will get his wish. Due to André's status as the son of a former army general, he's given a high rank of adjutant, which is basically the right-hand man of a general. He's sent to the front lines to join Emperor Alexander I himself in a joint coalition with the Austrian Emperor Franz II to wage war against Napoleon at Austerlitz. Napoleon, however, despite the fact that he had significantly smaller numbers than the Russian and Austrian armies, absolutely smashes his opponents with superior maneuvering and tactical brilliance. The Battle of Austerlitz has gone down in history as one of the greatest military achievements of Napoleon's career, which is saying something. Austria immediately surrendered to France after the battle, and Russia retreated all the way back to their homeland. During the battle, André is badly wounded and left on a hillside, bleeding out with nothing but a Russian staff of standard, which is one of those flag banner things you see armies carry in the movies with, you know, the, the, the flag on it and the, their own symbols or whatever. And while André is laying there, badly wounded with this staff of standard, and thousands of French troops are rushing past him and stepping on him and 
to punish the retreating Russians. He can see nothing but the marvelous, vast, indifferent, and incomprehensible blue sky, like he's never seen it before. He sees life from the vantage point of the sky and the indifference of the universe towards people. And as he lays there dying, Andre sees that the glory of man is really kind of pathetic when you're looking at it from the perspective of death, or maybe even just from the vantage point of an eagle. To cap it all off, Napoleon himself just happens to be nearby and is personally ordering medical teams to pick up survivors. He notices the staff of Standard and approaches Andre, only to see that he is still alive. Napoleon addresses Andre a few times, but Andre is no longer even interested in interacting with his former hero. He now sees that nothing really matters. Andre has an extraordinarily brilliant stroke of insight into what the universe is really like, and the emptiness and the shallowness and the grandeur of man. Here he has this experience with something higher and greater than him, something outside of him which he will never be able to understand, which is largely undefinable and inexplainable. Perhaps some of us can relate to this. I think every now and then we all have uh, a moment or an experience where we're captured out of the present and left to see life in a whole new way. We see ourselves almost in a third-person perspective, and everything comes with such clarity and focus as if our entire lives have been stretched out on a canvas and everything that has ever happened to us has culminated in this very moment. And then it's gone in a flash. For some, I imagine it's a positive experience. Like when you catch yourself laughing way too hard with friends that you sincerely love. Or maybe it's watching your children pluck a dandelion in wonder and excitement. Maybe it's hiking a long trail and you're tired and you look up and you see this enormous, breathtaking set of mountains. And just for a moment you feel insignificant in the greater scheme of things, but in a beautiful and profound way. For Andre, he has to touch death in the face in order to come out of his daily life and see everything in a different way, but it's largely a negative experience. He sees how alone he is, how indifferent the universe is, and, and how insignificant not only his life, but everyone's life really is. And this experience of touching the sky and seeing everything in a whole new way will be forgotten for many years to come in Andre's life, but once his wife dies in child labor and, and he has really nothing to live for, he ends up kind of living alone as a hermit. He lets his sister and father raise his son while he broods alone over the emptiness and meaninglessness of life and how to live it in light of those stark realities. But whenever he interacts with beauty, he finds that there's something in it that begs the idea that there's more to life than just matter and motion and death and emptiness. And so we'll talk more about how Tolstoy writes this character in a way that exposes his own experience with beauty as a door to the deeper life in episode three. Okay, almost done here. 
I wanted to talk about one more thing, which is my favorite scene in the book, and I'll conclude our introduction to War and Peace with that, because it truly is a beautiful, a beautiful, beautiful scene. A main character's name, who we won't get to examine in depth, is called Nikolai Rostov, who I won't be able to focus on in our series. And his arc has to do with honor and integrity and, and being a simple soldier, officer specifically. And the Rostovs are very rich, very politically influential, but Nikolai doesn't use that to his advantage when he's being promoted through the Russian ranks. And, and he insists on being a regular hussar and to earn his way fair and square from the bottom. And at one point, actually at a few points, Nikolai finds himself in a very, very troubling financial situation. Sometimes it's gambling debt, sometimes it's just life stuff, but he never leeches from his family, and he's very careful not to spend his father's assets for himself, even though the Mr. and Mrs. are always trying to give him money. His parents are always sending him things, and, and he just kind of stows it away and gives it back whenever he's visiting home. But at one point, towards the end of the novel, Mr. Rostov is getting old, and he's making poor financial decisions. And the family is beginning to look at the brink of ruin, and they're starting to sell their estates, and they can't make ends meet, and they're starting to go into some serious debt, and things are looking very grim. In a pivotal moment for Nikolai's development, and actually one of my favorite moments of the entire novel, you know what, no, it is my favorite moment of the novel, I'm saying it, is when Nikolai just keeps getting letter after letter while he's on the front lines trying to draft these plans, and, and he's, he's going from battle to battle, and he, but he keeps getting these letters describing what's going on at home. And so finally, he goes to his commanding officer, and he requests leave, and he goes home to take care of his family. And that transition from young adulthood, where he's just kind of looking out for himself and trying to make friends and, and improve his career and, and, you know, get recognized among his superiors and, and all those things that young adults are trying to get ahead in. And amidst all of that, you have this character who pauses and who recognizes that they left a family at home that they need to go take care of. And so... He goes home and finds that Mrs. Rostov is very angry at her husband, and the man of the house, Count Rostov Sr., is growing weak, and his lawyers are taking advantage of him, and people are cheating him, and, and the family, including his sister and younger brother, are very anxious, and they're fighting all the time, and they're worried about their future and whether they're going to keep their home. And, and Nikolai comes home, and he sets his father's house in order. He puts a plan together to get them out of debt. He finds the assistants and the lawyers who are trying to cheat them. He centers his family in a very beautiful way. He assures everybody that things are going to be okay and that he becomes the man that the Rostov family really needs him to be. And it's that beautiful moment where the firstborn son can partner with his father in managing their family. And the scene that I specifically want to zero in on is one cold, fresh, early Russian morning when he decides, hey, he's home, he's got to take it as a vacation. He wants to go on a hunting trip, but he's preparing for it in front of his little brother, and he says that he wants to go too. But his mom won't let him go unless his sister goes. And pretty soon, 
the whole family is going on this hunting trip. So Nikolai says, all right, fine, let's all go. Come on. And he, he gets the family horses and the sleds and the weapons and the bows and whatever else. And he leads this hunting expedition with his whole family. And they get a great catch of three or four rabbits, I suppose. I don't remember what they were. But since they're so far out into the forest, by the time it is getting dark, they decide to go visit their aunt and uncle who live nearby. And they haven't seen him in years, especially Nikolai, who's been at war for, you know, years. And their good-natured aunt and uncle are so excited to see them that they prepare this beautiful feast, and they sing, and they dance, and they play instruments, and they tell stories, and they catch up, and, and they share true joy and happiness together at being together and for accomplishing what they didn't think could be accomplished, namely the getting out of the financial struggles that Nikolai had gotten them out of. And, and they don't have a worry in the world, and they're just together, and they're laughing, and they're eating food, and, oh, oh try this, and, oh, that is so good. You know, oh, you made that. That's, that's incredible. And, and, oh, what's in this? And, and, they're, you know, and then they enjoy dessert, and they're telling stories, and, they're, and Nikolai is making them all laugh, and Pretty soon, one by one, they start falling asleep in the living room by the fire. And By the end of reading this short little chapter, you are so thankful that you got to watch these fictional characters enjoy the magic and the beauty of what family life could be if everybody was just a little less selfish and pitched in a little more and did the right thing. The, the beauty that can be found in family. You know, I, I really am convinced that sometimes fiction can capture reality better than reality can capture reality. We all have broken families, and we're all basically horrible people trying to get along with each other. But this scene captures what life sometimes gives us if we're willing to work for it. And if we're willing to cultivate that kind of environment, it is, it's truly beautiful. I can still remember where I was when I, when I, when I finished that passage. I, I closed the book, and it was late at night. I was getting off of a shift on the ambulance, and I was just cruising back to the station, just really touched, genuinely touched. And I hope that... Uh, in the next few episodes, if I could convince you to read War and Peace, to set aside whatever, you know, Hulu show that you normally watch and, and decide to, you know, spend half an hour a day for about a month reading War and Peace, that you would be similarly touched by whatever it is that would end up touching you. So thank you for listening, and uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of the series. Don't forget to visit us at wellreadchristian.com and Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, leave a like and subscribe. And thank you for listening.